Well, great. I, I'd like to begin, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll have this session, then we have a coffee break, I think, and then we've got a question and answer period, and then uh, we'll go to lunch. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're here to meet us and to lead us by your Spirit into truth so that the gap between exposition and experience might shrink. Lord, I thank you that you understand us this morning in a way that nobody else does. I thank you that we can be completely honest and open with you without fear. So be our teacher, and we'll trust you to do just that for your own name's sake. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be reading a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I've entitled this message, Light Out of Darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 6 to 11. 2 Corinthians is a letter in which Paul is as, about as honest as it gets as far as his hardships are concerned, and I'm so thankful for that. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Bam by the name of Ajith Fernando is the former leader of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. And anybody who is watching the news internationally will know that Sri Lanka is in a very desperate place right now as a country. And I just read an email from him which was a call to prayer for Sri Lanka. He said the following in one of his books. He said, today in the church we have a lot of emphasis on a therapy for suffering but insufficient emphasis on a theology of suffering, which must form the basis of all therapy for suffering. I found that very appropriate and insightful. And the Bible gives us a theology of suffering. It doesn't answer all of our questions by any means, but it gives God's view of life when things go bad. And he himself has been a man who has experienced suffering and lives in the midst of suffering all around him. Sometimes we hear people uh, say, why did God do this to me? 
Well, there are the exceptional situations when God allows something to happen for a season, as he did in the life of Job. But he who sees the end already from the beginning allowed that to happen for good and high purposes. But we need to be careful when we're saying, why did God do this to me? And we need to realize that sometimes we're putting the blame on God for things that man has done to us, or even the powers of darkness. And yes, God has allowed it. And sometimes, quite honestly, I put my hand over my mouth because the longer I live, the, more I, my, the longer my list gets of unresolved issues and unanswered questions, in particular in regards to suffering. I am slower these days to give a quick, pat answer. But we just need to know that God is a God of love, and love always leaves room for a voluntary response. And he took the risk that he did in Genesis chapter three that things would go wrong, and they did, but he had a plan ready from, from before the foundation of the world. And what we're experiencing today, much of it is the depravity of man in a fallen world, but let's be careful not to put all the blame on God himself. Doesn't mean that we have to call bad things good or that we have to enjoy things that are hard and painful. That's not what we're talking about. A Christian who is one who lives life with eyes wide open to the hard facts of life and then adjusts himself to truth. And so Paul says, light shall shine out of darkness. It's very interesting and significant that Paul did not say light shall shine instead of darkness, but light shall shine out of darkness. That's something different. I grew up in Minnesota, and in the summers, we spent part of our summer vacation on Madeline Island, which is part of the, the Apostle Islands in Shawamigan Bay on Lake Superior. We camped up there. My father built a cabin up there. And I can remember, you know, gathering driftwood and all kinds of wood to make these big fires on the beach. And we sat there with our parents as young kids, and they would show us the constellations in the sky. Because up on Lake Superior, you could see them very, very clearly. In Minneapolis, in a suburb where I grew up, you couldn't see those constellations as clearly there as you could on Madeline Island for one simple reason. It wasn't dark enough. Because some things are best recognized in the dark. And God said, light shall shine out of darkness. Job said in Job 12, God reveals mysteries from the darkness. And there's going to be a depth and a quality of the knowledge of Christ that is going to come through darkness. And then there is going to be a revelation not only to us, but through us in darkness. And God is going to use the element of contrast to make it clear that's Jesus. I never knew this about C.H. Spurgeon. 
but he suffered from darkness. In fact, in, in his uh, series of books now, which is entitled Lectures to My Students, he includes a whole chapter on depression and darkness. I never knew that about that great evangelist, but he had to go to southern France regularly with some of his staff to recuperate from these periods and seasons of darkness. And he said the following. He said, spiritual darkness of any sort is to be avoided and not desired. And yet, surprising as it may seem to be, it is a fact that some of God's best people frequently walk through darkness. Some of them are wrapped in a sevenfold gloom at times, and to them neither sun nor moon nor stars appear. The very choicest of God's people travel most of the way to heaven by night. They do not rejoice in the light of God's countenance, and though they trust in the shadow of his wings, they are on the way to eternal light, and yet they walk that way in darkness. I'm so thankful for Scripture, because Scripture, if you look at the biographical material of people's lives like David, like Moses, like Joseph, like Joshua, God, you know, he skips over these these long periods of time in a blink or a verse, if you will, and then he slows down at specific periods in scripture in the biographical flow of the saints' lives, and he camps on periods of suffering, on periods of hardship, yes, even on periods of failure. And as one of my old mentors said, he said, Peter's silence speaks. And silence about, about weakness and suffering speaks to those who observe that life and they say, well, you know, they could never relate to what I'm going through because they never share about their weakness. Personally, I believe that we tolerate too much mediocrity in the name of mercy in Christian circles. We ought to do things well. And yet at the same time, sometimes we can't. Sometimes there are limitations laid upon my life as a person or an organization, a ministry, church, family, marriage, whatever it might be, that are unavoidable and irreparable. And so we learn to live with limitations. And that's not a problem for Jesus. He said in John chapter 6 to Andrew, he said, let the little, come, the little kid come who has, you know, five crusty loaves and two stinky fish because weakness is never a problem for me, just unbelief. First Corinthians 1 verse 27, familiar passage, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast 
before God. And so one of the things that God loves to do is protect his glory, protect his fame and his reputation, and he does it through weakness. So that those of us who are weak, even through our own suffering, might know, I have nothing to boast about. I have nothing to boast about. God did it. Sometimes in my observation in the church, sometimes we, we run away from suffering, we wanna run away from hardship, and all that God was doing in that, in that setting for you and, and me was to bring us to a greater state of dependence. And, and if we want to avoid that, I have experienced this, I may want run away from the setting where God was doing that and I change the setting thinking that the change of the setting is gonna change my heart and then I run into the same problem somewhere else and discover the problem was not them, it was me. And so God is very faithful and he's a good teacher and one of the basic principles of teaching is repetition. And so when I run away from, I, I need to be careful because I might be running into another opportunity for God to bring me low and to a new point of dependence and trust in him. I've had to honestly be caught by the Lord in this school of dependence upon him because I have been expecting things from him in this lifetime that he hasn't necessarily always promised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, murdered a matter of weeks before World War II ended. And you think to yourself, Lord, couldn't you have couldn't you have prevented that? Sometimes there's this, this discussion in Germany, what would the church be now if the Lord had allowed him to live on? But God didn't. And a matter of weeks before the, the war ended, God allowed his life to be taken and there was a lot of unfinished business. Do you know what I'm re realizing? Uh, God has made some decisions in, in our ministry in, in, in Torchbearers. He's taken some of his best suits, uh, you know, servants home in their prime of life. One of them was my closest friend. He was 50 years old and he died in a hang gliding accident. And man, did he leave a lot of unfinished business behind and that caught me because I had to realize, well, maybe getting more done is not the top priority on God's list. Maybe he looked on, down on Hans Peter's life that day and said, you know, we've walked very closely on earth. And that gap has been so close that you're closer to my house today, so why don't you just come home with me? Bonhoeffer said, God fulfills all his promises 
not all my wishes. And when I read that, I had to go back to Scripture and take a look at what God has promised during this lifetime. While I, as an imperfect, fallen child of God, live east of Eden in an imperfect, fallen world, what has he promised for all of us? And what has he not? This is my list. God has promised me his eternal life, but not a long life. God God has promised me his healing on the new, new earth, but not always on this earth. God has promised me his comfort, but not a life without pain. God has promised me his righteousness, but not righteous people. God has promised me his home in heaven, but not a house on earth. If you read the Gospels carefully, God has promised me food and clothing, but not even a house. And the reason why that's the case is because this world is not my home. I'm living in exile. In fact, the word for a stranger in this world, according to Peter, is the word refugee. God has promised me his wedding feast, but not a spouse. God has promised me his joy, but not a life without sorrow. God has promised me his justice, but not human justice. God has promised me his power, but not a life without weakness. God has promised me his wisdom, but not a life without questions. God has promised me his guidance, but not a life without confusion. God has promised me his reward in heaven, but not man's recognition on earth. God has promised me his victory, but not a life without conflict. God has promised me his blessing, but not a life without obedience. God has promised me his reward, but not a life without a race. God has promised me his love, but not a life without rejection. God has promised me his peace, but not a life without turmoil. And sometimes life doesn't turn out as I imagined because it's based on my imagination and not God's revelation. And this has forced me to have to let go. And sometimes that's been hard. In all of the statements that we're going to just walk through closely this morning, there is this word, but. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I'm so glad for that because either during this lifetime or at least in the better tomorrow to which I am heading, things will not always be as they are right now. I need to live in that hope. 
I love the King James Version. It says, and it came to pass. Came to pass. Not stay. It's going to pass. And even if it's going to pass, when I enter into the presence of Jesus, things will not remain always like they are right now. So let's just remember that as we consider these statements. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. We we have adopted a word in the English language that is a German word. It's the word angst, and it means fear. And that word angst in the German language comes from another German word, enge. And that means to be in a tight place. It means to be in a place of limitations. It means to be in a place of a lack of opportunity. And if that's the case, it could be that somebody feels right now like their life is being wasted. Because they can't do the things that they would love to do. And there are limitations and they are in a narrow, tight place Health-wise, financially, as far as relationships and affirmation and comfort and understanding, when we're being denied things that we think are essential, we're experiencing affliction. Job said, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has put darkness on my path. Job 19 and verse 8. I went to Major Thomas, who is the founder of Torchbearers. Major Thomas was awarded what is called in England the Distinguished Order of Service. That's a purple heart. And he and his wife went to Buckingham Palace where he was awarded that by King George VI, the present Queen Elizabeth's father. And he came to Bodensdorf one day, I was a young staff member, and I began to whine about how hard it was in my ministry. He looked at me and he said, Peter, nobody ever said it was gonna be easy. End of discussion. I made a mistake. You never complain as to how hard your day is to a war hero. Another one of my mentors, the guy who who was crocheting, who told me I was, smelled like a full diaper, he just said, the, the week before he went to be with the Lord, I dropped him off at the train station. He says, Peter, you need to learn how to live with your limitations. Say yes to the borders that God has put on your person and your situation, but quit trying to fight it. It says in Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the... I thought scripture should say many are the afflictions of the wicked. It doesn't say that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
Secondly, Paul says we are perplexed, but not despairing. The word perplexed means, it means to, it involved. It means it, it's complicated. And there's certainly somebody here who is in a situation in which they are perplexed. And the thing about being perplexed is this. You go to somebody else for counsel or a word of wisdom, and the best that they can give you is a half answer. And you go away feeling offended because you're saying inside, that was so pat, that was so superficial, it didn't solve everything, and that can be an element of suffering in and of itself, because you go away feeling terribly misunderstood after you have made yourself vulnerable. You're perplexed. I love the German translation of this verse. It says, keinen Ausweg sehend und doch nicht ohne Ausweg. What that translation means is, you don't see a way out, and yet you're not without a way out. Sometimes I have to ask myself, if I, if I had all the answers, would that really help in my suffering? If I had all the whys answered, Gabby and I got engaged. My daughter Katerina was 12 years old at that time. Gabby nursed her husband who had brain cancer for the last two years of his life in her home. Katia had just learned how to walk on stilts, and Alexander had just passed away, and Katia asked her mother, can I show dad how I can walk on stilts? And this five-year-old girl. Goes into dad's room and there he is. He passed away. And that same girl stood in front of me at 12 years old and she said, did my dad have to die so that you could marry my mom? I don't have an answer to that. And that breaks my heart. Gabby will tell you she never got answers. But she got peace. I think peace is better than answers. We don't see a way out. And at that point, we need to remember the statement of Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when he said, I am the way. When my staff member, Andy McDonald, goes hiking with his, his family in the Alps, he has one of those backpacks that dad has, and he puts Charlotte, his daughter, in that backpack, and then they go on a hike and they get out of the car, Andy puts Charlotte in the backpack, and then they go. And when they start on the hike and come to the first crossing, Charlotte doesn't need to decide, do we go right or left? She can leave that decision to Andy. 
if it's getting hot in the afternoon and, and they don't have enough water, Charlotte doesn't need to worry about where they're going to stop. That decision is dad's. Charlotte doesn't need to decide on the direction, on the pace, on the goal. For Charlotte, Andy's the way. We understand that. When we don't know the way, Jesus is the way. And we come to him with all of our unresolved issues and unanswered questions. We've said this week that discipleship is the process of learning how to become dependent upon Jesus no matter what happens. And if he has called us to be absolutely dependent upon him, he then takes all responsibility for me and for you. What a privileged people we are. Paul says we are struck down but not destroyed. It's good to be humbled by suffering, but it's not good to be humbled by sin. You're look at, looking at somebody this morning who refused to humble himself in the presence of God and was humiliated by his own sin. That's what you got. It's always better to accept suffering than to be humbled by sin because there are always consequences that are gonna bring regret with it. And so I need to learn how to accept those things which strike me down and make me low. Students come to me sometimes and they say, shall I ask God to humble me? I say, for heaven's sakes, no, because he'll answer that prayer. And usually in a way that you didn't want or anticipate. Three times in the New Testament, Peter, James, and Paul all say, humble yourself. And the beginning of humility is the confession of pride. And by the way, humility is something you lose once you think you have it. You see, God's spirit is like water. It flows downhill. And he's found at the low place. Gabby and I, uh, you know, we're up sometime, you know, after six, and we have that hour of quiet time with one another in our living room before we go over to staff devotions. And she recognized that I was indulging in the luxury of self-pity one day. <laughs> she went outside to our vine. We grow grapes on the south side of our, heart, uh, our house. We're not, we're not very good at it. But she went out there with some clippers and she got a branch. She brought it back as I was wallowing in my self-pity and she took this branch out and she held it about six inches from my nose and she said, that's all you are. Don't forget it. Let's go to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for making the point. <laughs> Praise God. I brought a quote this morning from Oswald Chambers and he said this about self-pity. He said, all the almighty God is ours in the Lord Jesus and he will tax the last grain of sand and the remotest star to bless us if we obey him. What does it matter if external circumstances are hard? Why should they not be? 
If we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery, we banish God's riches from our own lives and hinder others from entering into his provision. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it obliterates God and puts self-interest upon the throne. It opens our mouths to spit out murmurings and our lives become craving spiritual sponges and there's nothing lively or generous about them. Self-pity is pride turned inwards. It's just all about me. Jesus understands, and his spirit flows always to the lowest point. And anything that brings me to the point of humility is a blessing in disguise. So I need to learn how to say yes to it. Brought a verse this morning also from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul said this 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God may entrust you and me with a hard life to give us a soft heart. And that soft heart is going to be one through which Jesus can minister to somebody else. My father, if I have as much energy at 80 plus as he did, I'll be thankful. And very late in life, he wanted to learn how to scuba dive. That's a joke in Minnesota because we have two seasons, winter and road repair. And so he went and learned how to scuba dive at the health club, and he brought me his certificate, and he was pretty proud of this. I said, well, what'd you see down there, the plug of the drain? So he went to Florida, did the real thing, brought back his pictures, and we're sitting there. And he said, you know, we got all our equipment on in this glass-bottom boat, and before the instructor allowed us to kind of, you know, go over backwards, he said, wait a minute, there's a golden rule in scuba diving, you must obey it, and it's this. Never take anybody deeper than you yourself have already gone. And when I heard that, I said, that applies to the kingdom of God. You never take anybody deeper than you yourself have already gone. And sometimes God is going to entrust you and me with a hard life in order that he might create a soft heart filled with comfort and compassion of Jesus for others. Amy Carmichael grew up in Ireland She broke off an engagement because the call of God and missions was so strong in her heart. She went to Cyprus, Japan, eventually went to India, hooked up with a traveling evangelist, found out that young girls were being sold as sex slaves, and began a ministry called the Donover Fellowship to house and educate them, much like we've been hearing from John and Missy this week. We still get their newsletters. 
At the end of her life, she experienced a lot of suffering. She was bedridden, and she wrote a book called Rose from the Briar. It's been written by a sufferer during suffering for sufferers. Rose from the Briar. And she said the power to help others lie in the acceptance of a trampled life. The thing that I'm real about, realizing about some of God's choicest servants is often they've had a season of suffering behind them. They don't talk about that, but they live with scars. Do you remember on the body of Jesus in John chapter 20 that Jesus, on his resurrection body, said to the disciples, put your hand here and your finger here and believe. And on the resurrection body of Christ, the Father left scars which were there at the hand, by the hands of evil people and he left them on the body of Jesus for one simple reason as a testimony of what God can overcome. Some of us live with scars, and God does not take them away. He will leave them there as a testimony of what he can overcome. The power to help others lie in the acceptance of a trampled life. In Psalm 56 and verse eight, the psalmist says, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Gabi and I went to Egypt on our honeymoon. That's a bad thing to say in torchbearer circles. You shouldn't go back to Egypt. And then we had a week of honeymoon with the kids. Our son Christian, when we got engaged, asked Gabi, Mom, where are we going on our honeymoon? <laughs> my wife, being very wise, said, You don't come on my honeymoon, I won't come on yours either. <laughs> well, we split our time with the kids because they deserved it. So we were in Egypt for a week, and then we went skiing in Austria with the kids for a week. And then we went back to Stuttgart, where I moved in. You know, it's like Uncle Buck moving in with the family in Stuttgart. And Gabi got ill because she'd eaten something in Egypt that eventually caused a kidney infection. So she was in the hospital the first week of our real marriage after the honeymoon, and I was a single dad. <laughs> our kids love this. <laughs> you know, Dad, can we watch TV at eight? I said, I am, come on. Cotty's <laughs> coming in, she said, can I wear this to school? Looks good to me. Can you braid my hair? Braid your hair, my roommate was bald at Bodensielf. You know, I tried my best, you know, got it in some kind of knot, and she just said, well, yeah, forget it, I'll just ask my friend at school. I got more compassion from people during that week than my wife did in eight years of being a widow. Kind of ticked her off, we'd go to the hospital and, and we'd sit there, the kids and I, and the kids would say, can we go now? 
Dad lets us do all kinds of things that Mom would never let us do. But we're not going to tell him what. <laughs> because we hadn't had time to kind of talk about the, the, the rules of the game. So they went to school, and I was in Gabby's apartment alone. And honestly, like, we didn't, we didn't date. I mean, we, you know, it was just like God gave me three lights, and God had given her green lights before that, and, and things happened pretty fast as soon as we had assurance before the Lord. So I was in her apartment kind of snooping around. Who did I marry? <laughs> it was kind of fun. I was a busy boy. <laughs> and I found her journals. What, what's, why'd you react like that? <laughs> All of a sudden, room got silent. <laughs> well, the reason was very simply this. What you put in a journal is very personal. God keeps a, God keeps a diary. And the things that have caused my tear are very dear to him. And he catches my tears in the bottle. Because he's not going to waste my tears or yours. Friends, we'll learn infinitely more from our tears than we ever will our laughter. You know, when somebody wears a cast, now they have, you know, these modern casts. You know, when I was a kid, some kid had come to school with this big plaster cast on their, on their leg or their arm. Sometimes you see those today. And you say, ah, oh, broke your leg, how'd that happen? We thought it was cool because we'd, we'd, you know, put pictures on there and sign our names and stuff on it. Well, if somebody has a broken leg, they wear a cast. Somebody has a broken heart, they don't wear a cast. And we can be singing in here, we can be laughing at the staff up here, and as the Proverbs say, we're going to be experiencing sorrow in our hearts at the same time, and nobody knows about it. You don't wear a cast when you have a broken heart. And that's what makes loneliness or suffering so lonely. I was teaching at our German-speaking Bible school in Austria, Schloss Klaus, and um, early in the week, probably one of the first meals, I sat down uh, across the table from a man who was obviously one of the oldest, if not the oldest, student at Bible school that year, and we got into a conversation. And I said, "Well, you know, are you taking a sabbatical?" No. Do you own your own business? You're having somebody else run it? No. Uh, Are you retired? No. I said, why'd you come to Bible school? And he said, because six months ago, my wife died. Got really quiet at the table because I'm not sure if everybody knew that. And I looked at him and I said, you know, that's interesting. I married a widow, so that's given me a window into that element of your experience, he burst out into tears, got really quiet at the table. At the end of the week, he came to me and he said, can I come to your house and talk to your wife? 
I said, no problem. He, he, he lived in Vienna. We live in Fischbach, probably six or seven hour drive. He drove to our home, sat at our table, started speaking to Gabi, and all she had to say was two words to minister to him. I understand. Somebody who really suffers, they don't necessarily need a lecture or a sermon. They don't need a nice card with a pat answer. Sometimes they just need somebody to come alongside and say, I understand, and cry with them. Just show up and be there. And she was able to say, I understand. I wasn't able to do that. I've done that sometimes in the past. I've said, I, I understand to a sufferer, and I didn't because I'd never walked in their shoes, and that was like putting salt in a wound. What I've learned from Gabi is this suffering may not make sense to you but it may be for the benefit of somebody else. Paul said at the end of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter four, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. What's the dying of Jesus? The dying of Jesus actually happened in a place called Gethsemane. It's an olive garden east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and the word Gethsemane means the olive press. It's where you make olive oil. And it was there that he got down on his knees before his father, and he said, Father, if you can take this cup away from me, please do. And he was under such stress. It says that he bled something like blood out of his pores. And he came to the point where he said, not my will, but your will be done. And it's interesting in Luke 22 in the parallel passage, it says an angel was there helping him. So thankful for that. Then he goes to Golgotha, he goes to the cross, and he exhibits a tremendous amount of peace, of confidence, because the crisis had taken place. And he goes to the cross with an incredible amount of poise because the, the crisis took place in the garden. That's where he died in his soul before he ever died in his body. And that is an element of the, of the dying of Jesus where I come to the place and I say, Lord, I'm gonna quit saying no to this. I'm just gonna say yes, your will be done. I brought a picture of a man that I've never met. His main name is Ludwig Krapf. You can Google him and find him, but you will not find a biography on his life. 
I'll tell you the reason why in a minute. He was born in 1810 outside of Tübingen to godly parents, studied theology at the University of Tübingen, and his first pastorate was a disaster. He didn't continue, and after he had left, a friend of his who was at Bible school with him in Basel said there's a mission in England that's looking for missionaries to go to East Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, places like that. So he gets on a ship after having been accepted to go eventually to Egypt. While they were traveling, his partner's wife, or excuse me, his partner died. His wife left behind. The widow eventually became his wife once they arrived in northern Africa. They eventually went to Ethiopia thinking that because of the Jewish population there, they would be prepared for the gospel. They weren't. They said, we've delivered your soul to the devil and your body to the hyenas, so leave town. They left town with a group of nationals tra traveling in like Bedouins through down the east coast of Africa, and while they were traveling, his wife gave birth to their first child. And after the baby was delivered, the baby died, and the nationals said, you bury that baby, baby here or we're going to leave you. They buried the baby under a tree, continued down to Mombasa. When they got to Mombasa, they were both afflicted with a nervous disease. His wife was pregnant with their second child, and after the second child was delivered, the wife died, and after the wife died, the baby died. And there he was on the east coast of Africa, and it was his desire to build a road through inland Africa and build a mission station every 100 kilometers in order to get the gospel into the interior, something that nobody had done. He and his, his partner, Johannes Reipmann, they continued into inland Africa. They discovered uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. That's what he's known for. The British thought he was crazy, he was hallucinating. He only saw one convert the whole time he was in the desert, eventually had to go home because he was so ill, married a woman from Stuttgart, she died, eventually married his housekeeper, and one day she walks into his, his uh, uh, den and uh, there he was dead on the floor. And you look up him up on Google and they said he was a failure as a missionary. He's a good, good explorer, but a failure as a missionary. What they didn't realize is this. He learned six tribal languages during that time, one of them being Swahili. And he and his partner translated the scriptures into Swahili after they first wrote it down. Gabi writes to the German consulate in Nairobi periodically, and the consulate is located in the Ludwig Kapf house. They hold him in such high regard because he wrote down Swahili. But he never saw the fruit of his ministry, and his reputation was one of a failure couple slides I brought with me. There was a young man here 
standing next to his mother in the orange. His name is Brighton. It's his father on the left, then one of his father's three wives, Brighton, and then his siblings. I said, Brighton, how big is your village? He smiled at me, and he said, we're Bedouins. We don't live in a village. We just go where there's water and food for our cattle. A missionary's son met him, wanted him to get an education. The father said, no, I need him to shepherd the sheep and look after the cattle. And the missionary said, okay, I'll call the police because it's, you're obligated to get your son an education. Father let him go, he learned English, got an education, a missionary sponsored him to come to Bodensio. He came to me at the end of our six months school and he said, Peter, I wanna go back to my people and bring the gospel to them, but I need to do something practical to help them. So he's, he's doing medical studies in India to go back to bring the gospel to his people. In fact, he's already started. The man in the middle to the right of the lady in the blue dress is a German missionary. He was the sponsor and he said, we need to bring Bible school to Africa. It's not doing everybody a lot of good to send the Africans to the West. So let's bring Bible school to them. So we did that last summer. And in two weeks, my staff member, the second one in from the left, Christoph Hills, is going to help lead that. The man standing to the far left is Hudson. He was a student at our school. He's a pastor of a church in Kenya, so he can go and teach in Swahili. Next, we have a picture of some of the students, I believe, in the next slide. And it's wonderful to be able to go there and teach the scriptures in their language. But when I see those pictures, I have to remember Ludwig Kopf. Often never gets credit for his faithfulness to Jesus. And God entrusted him with a hard life. And we reap the benefits today. I think the last slide. What I learned from Paul, what I learned from Ludwig Kopf, is very simply this. The master never wastes his servant's time. He's not gonna waste our tears, he's not gonna waste the suffering. Don't ask me how this is gonna take place. And it may not take place during my lifetime. That's his business. And when Missy said that, you know, missionaries in the past used to, you know, pack things in their coffin, I have said this often to our students. I heard, leapt for joy when she said that. Because before World War II, you got on a boat, packed your things, and brought your coffin with you to the mission field because you weren't gonna come back. Today, things have become very easy. It's not to despise the things that we enjoy right now. It's not to despise that. It's just the balance that I'm concerned about. We need a young generation that'll take their coffin with them. Because they'll realize that according to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14, here we don't have a lasting city. This is not our home. We're heading for a better one.
heading for a better one. Father, I want to thank you that you see the end of our lives from the beginning and you work towards higher purposes that we cannot even fathom. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you're a faithful high priest who sympathizes with us. You don't despise us. You don't take pleasure in hurting your children. And I thank you that, Lord, you're called the God of all comfort. And to somebody here this morning who in particular is experiencing the loneliness of suffering, I'd pray that you would manifest your nearness to them and that your spirit would push his comfort into their soul and that they would know that they're not alone and that they can say, yes, your will be done. Do that, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen.